Your most gracious, please be seated. First things first, um, I first wish to acknowledge and thank both the National Endowment for the Humanities and the college for making it possible for me to study Milton for these past two years, and also uh, four of my colleagues who received release time last semester so that we could read Paradise Lost and Lycidas together in a study group. Uh, secondly, I, I need very much to thank them for their help to me in reading Milton. They will no doubt detect that they are in this lecture in certain ways, and they are, should feel free to task me on it in the question period. I also especially want to remember here my Graduate Institute preceptorial, which I led this summer on Milton, where we read Paradise Lost and about four of his sonnets and the Areopagitica together. A really, really wonderful and very intensive experience in the heat of an Annapolis summer. So to all of them, to all of you, I thank you very much. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse that on this secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos, or if Sion Hill delight thee more, and Silua's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. As the opening lines of this solemn invocation to Paradise Lost lay out the poem's tragic theme of man's first disobedience and the fruit whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, we can hear in them echoes of the beginnings of the great epic poems of the classical age that preceded. The rage of Peleus' son, Achilles, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls in the Iliad. The man of many devices, who wandered full many ways after he had sacked the citadel of Troy in the Odyssey. And finally, arms I sing, and the man who first from the coasts of Troy, exiled by fate, came to Italy in Lavinian shores, till he should build a city and the walls of lofty Rome in the Aeneid. This last differs from its Greek antecedents, both in setting a limit to and in defining a purpose for the struggles of its hero and Virgil's conditional tone, till he should build a city, has further resonances with Milton's lines, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Our poet 
then calls upon the heavenly muse who inspired Moses on Mount Sinai, and then later dwelt in Solomon's temple on Mount Zion, where the sacred brook of Siloa flows nearby. Holy places that supersede Mount Helicon, the Ionian Mount that he mentions later, and the Fountain of Aganippe, the haunt of the muses of classical poetry. At Silua's brook in this long opening sentence, it comes to a partial stop with a semicolon before the poet proceeds, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar. This startling word adventurous alerts us to the nature of the song we are about to hear and by implication the character of its bard suggesting an endeavor full of risk and peril, one that is daring, possibly even brash. This poet, by contrast with his predecessors, intimates that it's not enough for him to present as hero an ideal man, some solitary and absolute sort of individual, capable of prodigious deeds and superhuman endurance in the midst of conflict. An adventurous song requires something else, something more. This difference is even more explicit in the proem or prologue to book nine, when as the poet leaves the long conversation between Raphael and Adam related in the previous four books, he announces that he now must change those notes to tragic, continuing, sad task yet argument not less but more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles on his foe pursued thrice fugitive about Troy wall, or rage of Turnus for Lavinia disespoused, or Neptune's ire or Juno's that so long perplexed the Greek and Cytherea's son. He remembers Achilles for the implacable avenging wrath that consumes him in his pursuit of Hector around the walls of Troy. Turnus is recalled as a jilted fiance of Lavinia and for his jealous rage at Aeneas, who's mentioned only obliquely as Cytherea's son. Similarly, Odysseus is styled as the Greek perplexed, that is to say, tormented and plagued by Neptune's ire. How are we to take this? Is this curious summary meant to dismiss the three greatest classical epics, just as we are about to be presented with the climactic temptation and fall of man? I don't think so. The more attentively I read Paradise Lost, the more echoes and reverberations I hear with the three great classical epics we read together in our first two years here. I wonder if Milton's purpose isn't rather to rehabilitate the heroic antecedents such as these. Sometimes these allusions are tinged with irony, as I think is the case in the passage I just cited. But irony of this sort can prompt us to reconsider and reassess what we think and feel about characters like Achilles and Odysseus or Aeneas without permitting us simply to discount them.
early on in the course of our NEH study group on Milton, at a moment when we had just noticed one of these epic echoes, one like, say, first, what cause moved our grandparents in that happy state to fall? At the beginning of Paradise Lost, book one, with the Iliads, what God drove them, that is, Agamemnon and Achilles, to fight with such a fury? One of my colleagues asked with a hint of exasperation, what is he doing? He can't just play around with things like this. This remark struck me as being both fair and true, a rightful insistence that poets should not be simply permitted to do whatever strikes their fancy. They should be held to some standard of poetic justice. If we consider for a moment the answer to each of these epic questions, these two, Apollo in the case of the Iliad, and the infernal serpent is the answer to the question in Paradise Lost, we might gain some sense of what Milton is doing. Later on in book one of Paradise Lost, soon after Satan summons his defeated legions with a majestic command, awake, arise, or be forever fallen. As they gather on the plain of hell, we learn the names of all the fallen angels. As they were, we learn that the names of all the fallen angels, the original names, were blotted from the heavenly record after the rebellion from God, and that later, after the fall, men came to adore devils for deities. Milton could never resist alliteration. And gave them the names of all the various idols through the heathen world. So, this means that Apollo, the son of Zeus and Leto, whose anger at Agamemnon for failing to honor the request by the priest Chryses for the return of his daughter prompts him to smite the Achaean armies with a fatal plague at the opening of the Iliad, this Apollo turns out to be merely one of that nameless horde of apostate angels who appear in Paradise Lost in the catalog of devils. Milton's counterpart in Paradise Lost to Homer's catalog of ships in the Iliad. And, by the way, the Greek gods come last in the catalog, far behind Moloch and Chemosh and Baal and Ashtaroth, the horrible and magnificently obscene gods of the Ammonites, Moabites, and peoples of Canaan, all enemies of the Israelites and the living, invisible God of Milton's poem. Moreover, his prolepsis in calling the fallen angels by their names as pagan deities, as named and worshiped by post-lapsarian humankind, also contrasts dramatically with Adam's account to Raphael in Book 8 of how at God's invitation to him to give all living things their names, he named them as they passed and understood their nature. The post-lapsarian naming of bad angels by the sons and daughters of Adam, people like us, does not participate in the same knowledge and insight with which God endued Adam's original innocent apprehension of the unfallen created order. I should mention here that this is only one of many such instances in Paradise Lost where we are first given the fallen version 
or perspective on things, the one closest to us as readers, as children of our fallen grandparents, Adam and Eve, before we are given the truer, but to us, remoter original. This amounts to nothing less, in the case of the ancient epics, than a kind of epic deflation, a gigantic put down of the gods of antiquity who figure so largely in the epics of Homer and Virgil. But if Apollo is nothing more than some dissembling fallen angel turned false god, what are the heroes of Homer and Virgil? What of Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas? Are they similarly debunked in the course of Milton's poem? By associating and contrasting these classical heroes with the chief figures of Paradise Lost, with Satan, with the Son of God, with Adam and Eve, Milton raises the same questions that are with us from our very first seminar here on the Iliad, the Odyssey, or the Aeneid. What is a hero? And what is worthy of being considered heroic? It's important to note at the outset, however, that despite the historical precedence of the ancient epics to Paradise Lost, it claims to tell the story that is really prior of the first man and woman and their fall, the causes for this, and the remedy that will ultimately transform their and our tragedy into a divine comedy in which restoration is effected and redemption is possible. Thus, the ultimate terms of heroism here range from the transcendently and divinely heroic to the demonically evil and debased, with the possibility of a genuine human heroism newly realized that reflects the knowledge of these ultimate terms as the fruit of the poet's great argument. In the passage we just looked at, we saw that in raising and answering the question that introduces the narrative of the program, of the poem, what cause the infernal serpent, Milton introduces the character of Satan who dominates the first books of the poem and whose implacable envy and revenge against what he calls the tyranny of heaven prompt him to undertake his odyssey from hell to our newer world, either to waste it utterly with hellfire or to possess it as an empire. A demonic project that mimics elements of both the Aeneid and the Odyssey. It's difficult in these early books not to find Satan at least somewhat attractive and sometimes immensely entertaining in spite of the numerous cues that Milton gives to warn us about his true nature. Consider, for example, the names of Satan beginning with the aforementioned infernal serpent. We go to arch enemy and thence in heaven called Satan, the apostate angel, the arch fiend, the lost archangel, their great sultan, not politically correct. <laughs> Archangel ruined, that's my favorite. These all occur in book one, and this is not an exhaustive list. Each tells us something of what Satan is and that he certainly is not good, but as it is for Eve, it is hard for us not to be fascinated and taken in by him perhaps because of Milton's cal calculated grandiloquence. 
If such is meant to deter us, we might be tempted like the poet William Blake to, to claim or say, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. <laughs> As is a serious claim, there's a whole half of Milton scholarship that goes down this path. You can probably guess that I'm not going to, but anyway, I think you can still enjoy Satan. More, more influential, but not too much, more influential in our initial assessment of Satan, perhaps, are his own stirring words that he uses to rally the fallen angels. What though the field be lost? All is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. And what is else not to be overcome? That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. His refusal to compromise or concede, his indomitable courage and enormous sense of honor and personal worth may remind us of Achilles at first, until we remember that Achilles' wrath against Agamemnon is neither immortal nor unlimited. At the height of his rage, in Book Nine of the Iliad, he tells the embassy of Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax that's been sent to him by Agamemnon, that he, quote, will not think of arming for bloody war again, not till the son of wise King Priam, dazzling Hector, batters all the way to the Myrmidon ships and shelters slaughtering Argives, gutting the hulls with fire. That is a limit. Later, and I'm not being ironic, <laughs> later, the climactic scene in Iliad Book 24 shows an Achilles capable of marveling at the majestic nobility of Priam, who comes to ransom the body of his fallen son Hector. And in this case, Achilles spares the life of the old king despite himself when Priam inadvertently enrages him with his suggestion that the Achaean prince can enjoy the ransom just paid when he returns to his native land. By contrast to these heroes, Satan claims to possess, quote, a mind not to be changed by place or time, to which he adds in two of the most famous lines of the poem, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. This inalterable hatred against heaven originates in the umbrage he takes at the Father's proclamation to the full company of heaven that his only begotten Son, the powerful Word, through whom all things were made, is Messiah, King, anointed, an announcement that Satan finds unbearable, for he thought himself impaired, that is, lowered in rank and esteem among the company of heaven. The epic voice tells us in the following line, 666, six, six. I'm not making this up, that Satan, <laughs> deep malice thence conceiving and disdain, is at that moment inspired to launch his rebellion and perpetual war against heaven. 
after his defeat in a three-day-long epic battle related in Book 6 of Paradise Lost and his expulsion into hell with the rebel angels, he builds his great capital pandemonium and resolves almost immediately to enlarge his honor and empire, as he puts it, by conquering the new world that he has just heard about. Many readers have also noticed parallels between Satan's heroic journey to discover this new world, related through parts of the narrative of books two, three, and four, and the account that Virgil gives us of Aeneas' flight from his countrymen from Troy and his struggle to establish the new kingdom that will serve as the basis for Rome. By contrast, it is significant that Satan undertakes this quest alone and as the ultimate in impious projects, one that is meant to thwart the divine will and to destroy the inhabitants of earth by fraud. When at the opening of book six, he alights on Mount Niphates, ready to initiate his destructive program, he pauses dramatically to consider his situation, only to find that horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts and from the bottom stir the hell within him. For within him hell he brings, and round about him, nor from hell one step, no more than from himself, can fly by change of place. In our study group, one of my colleagues pointed out that Satan's inner tumult here, initially wordless, is reminiscent of Plutarch's description of Caesar's deliberations before he crosses the Rubicon. He wavered much in his mind when he considered the greatness of the enterprise into which he was throwing himself. He checked his course and ordered a halt while he revolved with himself and often changed his opinion one way and the other without speaking a word. Despite the great journey he has undertaken, Satan paradoxically finds himself trapped and confined within the limits of his fixed mind. For once, at a loss for words. And as he gazes towards Eden and then heaven, try as he might, he is unable to make a heaven out of his inner hell. Remembering what he was, what is, and what must be worse. The deflation always comes with the enjambment in Milton. He at last gives his utterance, gives utterance to his inmost thoughts in a speech that begins with lines originally intended for a tragedy Milton proposed to call, and this is my favorite title out of all of his works, and it's one he never wrote, Adam Unparadised. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? No one can use the prefix un the way Milton does. In the 81 lines of the soliloquy that follows, Satan demonstrates the truth of La Rochefoucauld's maxime, that whatever discoveries one may have made in the land of self-love, there's still a lot of uncharted territory. <laughs> Chronologically, the first lines written for Satan in Paradise Lost, because they came from this earlier tragedy that he abandoned. These lines give us a sense of how Milton originally conceived his matchless villain. Satan recognizes the enormity of his offense against heaven's matchless king, whom he acknowledges as his creator, contradicting his claim to the angel Abdiel later in the poem 
that he is self-begot, self-raised, and goes on to confess that lifted up so high, I stained subjection. This word, actually it's disdain, returns again later in the soliloquy as he considers the possibility of repentance and pardon in order to escape the ever lowish, lower hellish deep that threatens to devour him. Oh, then at last relent. Is there no place left for repentance? None for pardon left? None left but by submission. And that word disdain forbids me and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath whom I seduced. What is so terrible for Satan, so forbidding in this word disdain? Its primary meaning is to think unworthy of oneself, to despise or treat with scorn. And Satan's sense of impairment, of his diminished status beneath both the Father and the Son of God, drives him not only to cut himself off from heaven's free love dealt equally to all, but as he confesses here, to seduce a third of his fellow angels from the allegiance and service they rightfully owe to God. In proposing to himself what it would mean to repent and obtain pardon, he can only imagine that his own high thoughts would soon prompt him, as he says, to unsay what feigned submission swore. Like Claudius in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Satan brings himself to the very threshold of repentance, but in his great pain and anguish can sustain no firm purpose of amendment. In the painful course of his long deliberation on Niphates, Satan shows what Hume later on will assert in his treatise, that tis not contrary to reason to refer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. And like Caesar, who ultimately casts aside his misgivings to cross the Rubicon and move on Rome to pursue empire and personal power, Satan rejects hope and contrition to embrace the evil that he calls his good, to win by deceit and hold by fraud, divided empire with heaven's king over this new world. He comes to Eden as an arch felon, a terrorist whose mind is set on the destruction of the blissful, sweet, newly created world that he can appreciate but not abide. That fixed mind and high disdain that distinguish him from the outset of the poem persist through all his outward transformations from stripling cherub to cormorant to toad and finally to monstrous serpent on his belly prone, reluctant, in book 10, the form he first takes on to deceive Eve, but then finds himself stuck in when the explosion of hisses from his fallen angel followers similarly and horribly and aptly transmogrified greet him at the end of his triumphant return to hell. In his fixity and self-professed unchangeableness, Satan distinguishes himself not only from the classical heroes of antiquity, but also from Adam and Eve and the entire company of heaven loyal to the Father, including the Son of God. 
we need to consider the last of these next. For in looking at the Son of God and then comparing him with Satan, we can lay out the two extremes of transcendent heroism and unsurpassed villainy, the ultimate terms of the created order. Yes, I said created order. It is important first to note that God the Father is omnipotent, immutable, immortal, infinite, eternal king, quote, author of all being, and invisible, invisible amidst glorious brightness. While the Son, the radiant image of his glory, the Father's glory, is the only begotten Son, suggesting a being in essence different from the Father, a unique immutable creature, albeit the firstborn of creation, in relation to the father of an inferior to a superior. I apologize if this seems to be a needlessly abstruse digression on Milton's anti-Trinitarianism, but it helps explain two features of Milton's presentation in the Council of Heaven in Book 3 that most readers find strange, if not troubling. First, the father and the son are depicted as having a conversation in the presence of the loyal angels in which the father, prompted by the sight of Satan winging his way towards Eden, tells the son how the desperate revenge of Satan will pervert man through guile to fall and goes on to explain how the mitigating factor of this deception warrants the mercy and justice that he will show man after the fall. Orthodox Christian theology about the Trinity with its formal profession of the unity of substance attributed to the Father, Son, and Spirit as formulated in the Nicene Creed would most likely deter uh, the poet from presenting such an exchange. But here the Son is a creature, though the firstborn and the highest of all creation, and he learns in the presence of the angels what is hidden in the depths of his Father's foreknowledge. He doesn't already know it. If the son already knows everything by virtue of his own consubstantiality with the father, this celestial conversation takes on the aspect of a strange court mask with the king and the crown prince as the principal players, or of a duo recital for the benefit of the angels and us readers, something I don't think Milton means to do here, however strange we may find the scene to be. Second, as the sacred conversation continues, the father explains that once man has fallen, the vigor of his original goodness being forfeit and enthralled, as he said, justice demands that he with his whole posterity must die, adding, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. This long exposition on the need for atonement for the sin of Adam and Eve, before it's even happened, culminates with the Father's hard, direct question addressed to the entire company of heaven. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime and just the unjust to save? Dwells in all heaven charity so dear? The silence that follows this question, the heavenly choir stood mute, is the most dramatic event in this scene up to this moment, until 
the Son of God offers himself as the proxy for disabled humanity with the dramatic words, behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall, account me man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off and for him lastly die well pleased. Notice here that Milton, and those of you who have the sheets can see this, notice here that Milton differentiates the me of the son's dramatic offer by adding an extra e to the spelling, something he does elsewhere with the pronouns he, ye, and she, as if to simulate the emphasis Greek achieves with the accented eme over the enclitic me, or by adding the particles de or ge for additional stress, or like the use of moi as a stressed pronoun in French. Yet the son's me, 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 me is not the self-aggrandizing or vainglorious egotism that we hear later from Satan, for example, when discovered lurking in the garden by the angel guards Ithuriel and Zephon, who do not recognize him, asks, Know ye not, then, said Satan, filled with scorn, know ye not me? Not to know me argues yourselves unknown. Rather, the son's proposal is to empty himself of all that is rightfully his for the sake of mankind, which is the sacrifice of glory freely put off in the incarnation and which necessarily entails his own death, so that his emphatic me is a rhetorical measure both of the desperate condition of a fallen world and the heroic love of the son for mortal man. Moreover, the son's words here echo those found in an incident related in book nine of the Aeneid. During the bitter war that erupts between Aeneas and the Rutulian prince Turnus for the hand of Lavinia after the Trojans have landed in Italy. Two Trojan soldiers, Nisus and Euryalus, are a devoted pair of lovers who set out from the besieged Trojan camp through enemy lines to gain help from Aeneas, who is away. Nisus, the older, cannier veteran of the two, hears the cry of Euryalus, his innocent, spirited cohort, as he's caught by a Rutulian patrol after impulsively wrecking havoc in their camp. Nisus, in trying to deflect the avenging wrath of the Rutulians from his young comrade onto himself, cries out, on me, on me, here am I who did the deed, on me turn your steel, O Rutulians, mine is all the guilt. He neither dared nor could have done aught. This heaven be witness in the all-seeing stars, he but loved his hapless friend too well. This cry of on me, on me, mine is all the guilt sets the poetic precedent for the son's cry during the council of heaven. But there is a sense in which Milton, though writing his poem 1700 years later, scoops Virgil by having the son offer himself for all of fallen humanity shortly after the creation of the world. It can be seen too that the son's magnanimity combines elements of the experience, generosity, and selflessness of Nisus with the innocence and beauty of Euryalus, 
providing a standard of heroism that is at once poignant and extraordinary, perhaps we might say transcendent. Whatever the case, the sun at this point emerges as the outstanding hero of the poem. In reading Paradise Lost for seminar in junior year, we completely skip over book six and nearly all of book seven, the very heart and center of Milton's poem. I would say parenthetically that I think this is one of the most egregious omissions in the entire program of any book that we read. But it's there in these books, six and seven, that Raphael recounts for Adam and Eve both the sons Aristea in the battle of heaven against Satan, a kind of strange Iliad, the central epic episode of the poem, and his work as the omnific word in book seven, affecting the will of the father in creation. We should note here that the exact center of the poem, whether we take the 10 book division of the first edition of 1671 or the 12 book division of the second edition of the poem in 1674, which only adds 14 lines, is placed at the climax of the Battle of Heaven in Book 6 when the sun appears in the chariot of paternal deity and single-handedly defeats the Satan and his cohort of fallen angels who throw themselves headlong into the bottomless pit. It should be needless to say that in a work of such length and complexity, it is doubtlessly significant, the result of great art and deliberateness, that the center is placed here. Well, what then of Adam and Eve? We meet them before the fall in book four, two of far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty, lords of all, in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shown. Despite their common heroic bearing and natural dominion over the garden, they are not equal. For contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace. He for God only, she for God in him. Valor suggests the sort of strength and bravery that makes one equal to conflict and battle while softness, at least before the fall, is meant to imply mildness and gentleness rather than weakness or timidity. As in heaven with the Father, the Son, and the angels, so too in paradise there's a hierarchical order here expressed in Adam's gentle sway and Eve's coy, that is to say, quiet or modest submission. In the first words we hear between the two of them, Adam marvels that they should enjoy freely such unmerited happiness while following the delightful task, as he terms it, of tending the garden and obeying God's easy charge, his words again, to refrain from eating of the tree of knowledge. Eve seconds this and claims herself the happier of the two in enjoying Adam's preeminence, something we tend to forget in the course of her long account of the fir her first awakening on the day of creation. Is it the case that such perfect harmony between the sexes, though without equality, is something that can only be imagined by a poet who claims to be the beneficiary of some truly extraordinary inspiration? If we grant this for the sake of the poem, we might be tempted to think that the created world of Eden is simple and perfect and static, 
But this turns out not to be the case. The angel Raphael, sent by the father to warn Adam of the danger that Satan presents to his happiness, first shares a meal with Adam and Eve, and in answer to Adam's question about how an angel can partake of earthly fruit, gives an account of a dynamic created order in which corporal nutriments endowed with various forms are equally capable of nourishing different forms of life in the hierarchy, which all having first proceeded from the Almighty are meant by degrees and over time to return to him. The importance of this for Adam and Eve is made explicit when Raphael continues, and from these corporal nutriments, perhaps your bodies may at last turn all to spirit, improved by tract of time, and wing descend, ethereal, as we. Happiness takes time, may increase over time, indeed is meant to, yet the metaphysical and moral dynamics of the creative order are such that each stage is capable of only so much and no more at a given time. Leibniz would say only so much at any given moment is come possible. This is what it means to eat right. Note too that the ascent is to the angelic order, the angelic Raphael then tells Adam and Eve that in time they, quote, may at choice here or in heavenly paradises dwell if ye be found obedient and retain unalterably firm his love entire, whose progeny you are. This is the beginning of the first of six warnings that Raphael gives Adam in the course of their long conversation in the books that I mentioned in each setting out clearly what is at stake in obedience and disobedience, and suggesting the dynamic of growth that presupposes both a hierarchy of perfection and a continuity of unchangeable love. Later, in Book 7, Raphael relates to Adam and Eve the conversation that the father has with the son just prior to creation. After characterizing Satan and the fallen angels as self-lost, a divine correction of Satan's earlier claim to be self-begot, self-raised. He proposes to create, and these are the Father's words, another world out of one man, a race of men innumerable, there to dwell, not here. But by degrees of merit raised, they open to themselves at length the way up hither, under long obedience tried, and earth be changed to heaven and heaven to earth, one kingdom, joy, and union without end. In his final angelic admonition, the most succinct and the one given to Adam alone, Raphael says, be strong, live happy in love, but first of all, him whom to love is to obey and keep his great command. Take heed, lest passion sway thy judgment to do aught which else free will would not admit. Thine and of all thy sons, the weal or woe in thee is placed. Beware, I in thy persevering shall rejoice and all the blessed stand fast to stand or fall free in thy own arbitrament it lies. 
perfect within, no outward aid require, and all temptation to transgress, repel. Arbitrament is the capacity to decide for oneself, in a word, free choice. The warning that I just quoted ends with two imperatives, require, that is, ask or demand as a right, no outward help, and repel, that is, resist any enticement to break the law set down. We can only infer from this that Adam and Eve are fully capable, self-sufficient, perfect, so far as repelling any temptation to break the soul command is concerned. We know even before we reach it that Eve and Adam will both fail the trial unsought that Adam realizes will come, indeed must come, and of which he warns Eve as she leaves him alone in Book 9. Just as Homer displays Achilles in single combat against Hector, and Virgil presents Aeneas alone against Turnus, Milton, in the second great epic episode of the poem, presents Eve as protagonist alone against Satan, now incarnate in a spirited sly snake, endowed with speech, intent on her ruin. After Eve recovers from her amazement at hearing language pronounced by tongue of brute, she asks the serpent how he became capable of speech. And he replies vaguely but enticingly, attributing his strange alteration to eating the fair apples he found after coming by chance upon a goodly tree in the garden. She then follows him to the tree of knowledge, which she immediately recognizes as the one forbidden, telling the serpent that it is neither to be eaten nor touched under pain of death. At this, Satan takes on the role of advocate for cosmic justice and human entitlement, like and this is one of the great similes of the poem, some orator renowned in Athens or free Rome. And in what is to be his last speech in paradise, he rises to an eloquence that appears to provide incontrovertible proof of the native virtue of the interdicted fruit, raising formidable arguments against its ban and for its wholesomeness. The most compelling of these is based upon the simple specious proportion that states, in effect, that in eating the fruit, as a change from serpent is change into a serpent with logos, with speech, the change from man will be result in a change into God. We know that this is specious from Raphael's discourse earlier and from our reading of Genesis, and also from our status as descendants of Eve and the fruit of that forbidden tree. The true proportion expressing the change that has taken place in Satan and is about to take place in Adam and Eve, and of course the change in Satan is one that he denies, is from archangel to archangel ruined. Again, my favorite title. And from man to fallen man. Eve knows the first ratio of the second proportion, archangel to archangel ruined, from Raphael, 
but she believes she sees the evidence of the first ratio of the first transformation, that is, change from serpent, change to serpent with logos, before her eyes, and hears it in her ears. But she ignores the contradiction between the ultimate term of the first satanic proportion, namely God, and Raphael's earlier discourse about the possibility of gradual ordered ascent to the angelic order. Besides, it is noon, and she is hungry, and the savory smell of the fruit beckons, so she pauses to deliberate, her private musings ultimately giving approval to what, for her, the serpent has proved. She first plucks the fruit through expectation high of knowledge, and then, serpent-like, she greedily engorges, and that's Milton's word, it a far remove from her earlier rural repast with Adam and Raphael, as she forgets Raphael's discourse on the natural and gradual improvement to be gained by eating in accord with divine command. The effects of the fruit on Eve are immediately apparent. She worships the tree, praises experience as best guide, speculates about whether God has seen what she has done, and then deliberates over whether or not to keep the odds of knowledge that she now possesses to herself by not sharing the fruit with Adam, to draw his love the more to her, now his equal, or she begins to think better yet, superior. Experience is not such an effective teacher, or so it seems. Eve's first impulse here is not to imitate her own experience of the serpent's apparent generosity. But second thoughts then cause her to worry that if God has seen her, she will die alone, and Adam might rewed happily a second Eve. Fearful, jealous thoughts that prompt her to decide firmly that, quote, Adam shall share in bliss or woe. The epic battle here lost by Eve is not one of fabled knights in battles feigned, as Milton says earlier, but one of words and will and natural grace disregarded and abandoned. When Adam finds her at the tree of knowledge, Eve recounts what has happened, but adds the lie that she did it all chiefly for him, and now she bids him to eat lest different degree disjoin us. Adam's inward musings, like Eve's on the cusp of her fall, show the paradoxical character of his decision. How hast thou yielded to transgress, he says to himself, the strict forbiddance, how to violate the sacred fruit forbidden. Some cursed fraud of enemy hath beguiled thee, yet unknown. Unlike Eve, however, Adam is not deluded by the seemingly miraculous transformation of the serpent. But just as he earlier gave irrefragable arguments for why they should not separate in the first place, only then to let Eve go off, he now abruptly adds, and me with thee hath ruined, for with thee certain my resolution is to die. How can I live without thee? Another Eve could never repair the loss of the one who stands before him. And the link of nature, as he terms it, 
that draws him to her also commands his inward ascent, even as he hails her as, and here's that word again, adventurous Eve. Well, what else might he do? He might recollect something else he heard from Raphael. Earlier, when Raphael gave Adam and Eve the account of the fall of the rebellious angels, he told them of a certain angel, the dreadless angel, Abdiel, who in his efforts to dissuade Satan from his disastrous course, urged him to hasten to appease the, the insensate father and the insensate son, while pardon may be found in time besought. But Adam no more recalls this exemplary advice than Aeneas remembers his duty to the gods and his Trojan countrymen while trysting with Dido during the royal hunt and storm outside of Carthage, or Paris, his combat oath, when he beds down with Helen while Menelaus ranges the battlefield before Troy. As Adam eats the fruit in this happy trial of love, as Eve calls it, Eve joins him, repeating her former trespass, and the two complete together, this is the only time Milton uses these words, the mortal sin original, in a kind of idolatrous sacramental meal. The force of the fruit quickly inflames carnal desire in them both, and they consummate the fall with a gross coupling that has aspects of both rape and meretricious seduction. This glorious trial of exceeding love, seniors remember this as you listen to Tristan on Isolde, so hailed by Eve, culminates with the transient link of lust, sealing their disobedience with sex as a kind of second pagan sacrament. They lapse into a restless sleep and awaken to guilt, shame, and estrangement that leads them to mutual recrimination, neither self-condemning, the epic voice tells us. Each is now alone and isolated, though together in paradise. Later, after the son is dispatched from heaven by the father to apprise Adam and Eve of the judgment against them and of the mysterious promise of the seed, thus tempering justice with mercy, Adam, now alone, laments what he can only see as the end of this new glorious world. With its 124 lines, I'm not gonna read them, I promise, it is the longest and darkest soliloquy of the entire poem, wherein Adam, at the prospect of all future generations cursing him, wishes for death and submits to the justice of his punishment. In the end, he acknowledges that all his reasonings, as he says, lead me still but to my own conviction, first and last on me, me only, as the source and spring of all corruption, all the blame lights do, so might the wrath, fond wish. And then he says to himself, could thou support that burden heavier than the earth to bear? than all the world much heavier, though divided with that bad woman. Recall the words of Nisus and the son we considered earlier, words of deep love and selfless heroism. It's difficult not to hear the stressed accusatives of Adam's words in their despair at his impotence and in his contempt for Eve as the dark inverse of those antecedents. 
When Eve approaches him, he abrades her for being as false and hateful as the serpent. And for her part, in profoundly moving lyrical lines, she professes her love for Adam and begs for forgiveness with words that resonate with the promise of hope and restoration offered earlier by the sun. On me exercise not thy hatred for this misery befallen. On me already lost, me than thyself more miserable. Both have sinned, but thou against God only, I against God and thee, and to the place of judgment will return. There with my cries importune heaven that all the sentence from thy head removed may light on me. Sole cause to thee of all this woe, me, me only just object of his ire. Eve, in acknowledging her sin and pleading for Adam's forgiveness, first reaffirms the order established from the beginning of Adam for God and she for God in him, the created order that has been fractured by their sin. Then, perhaps remembering Abdiel's injunction to hasten to appease the insensate father and the insensate son, because Eve has heard that too. She resolves to go alone to the place where they both have received the divine judgment, to implore the divine mercy that Adam, at this point, cannot even imagine, overwhelmed as he is by his hellishly dark vision of divine justice. In words that most nearly echo words of the son to his father, she offers to take upon herself the entire burden of guilt that Adam despairs even the two of them together can sustain. Her final words, me, me only just object of his ire, correspond most nearly to the sons as he says to the father, life for life I offer on me, let thine anger fall. Yet while this offer is utterly heroically generous, it stems from but one impulse among a host of conflicting emotions that Eve feels. But it has its effect. Adam is moved slowly to relent in his anger and first advises Eve to bear her own punishment first. But he then imitates her generosity in wishing that all might fall upon himself, finally suggesting that their proper task is to strive in offices of love to lighten each other's burden of woe. Eve next proposes desperate measures, an end to sexual love between them to render them childless and joint suicide as a form of euthanasia. But Adam, perhaps reminded by Eve's earlier selfless impulse of the son's promise that her seed will bruise the serpent's head, now urges what she herself had that they both return to the place of judgment, humbly to confess their faults in deepest sorrow, with tears, as he says, watering the ground. Significantly, the poet does not give us their words, but as book 11 opens, the prayers of Adam and Eve are received in heaven, where the son renews his pledge to serve as advocate, and the father dispatches the angel Michael with a cohort of cherubim to send them forth sorrowing, yet in peace. To this end, the remaining two books of the poem are devoted to Michael's education of Adam through a series of visions and lecture narratives in which he's shown the nature of death 
and the ultimate victory of the promised seed. There's not time enough now to consider the lengthy course that Michael gives Adam before the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Let it suffice here to notice Adam's response at the end to what he learns. And these are Adam's final words. Henceforth I learn that to obey is best and love with fear the only God, to walk as in his presence, ever to observe his providence, and on him soul depend, merciful over all his works, with good still overcoming evil, and by small accomplishing great things, by things deemed weak, subverting worldly strong, and worldly wise by simply meek, that suffering for truth's sake is fortitude to highest victory. With these final words, Adam seconds those of the poet earlier in his proem to book nine, when Milton holds up what he claims as, quote, the better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom as the proper subject for heroic song. Courage, bravery, and fortitude are traditionally what epic bards sing about. In Greek poetry, tharsos, courage, confidence, boldness, and thrasos, courage, confidence, or sometimes rashness. With Andrea, manliness, strength, bravery, designating the word for this virtue that Plato and Aristotle use. In Latin poetry, virtus, manliness, virtue, bravery, courage, and fortitudo, physical strength from fortis, moral bravery, courage. In all three languages, one of the four cardinal virtues. We saw the paradigm instance of this in Paradise Lost before at the Council of Heaven in the son's volunteering to empty himself in order to redeem man by taking on human flesh with all its vulnerability and mortality after the fall, becoming small in order to accomplish great things. Adam has come to understand that obedience may ultimately demand the greater fortitude. From the heroic examples of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and preeminently Messiah, all presented by Michael in his account of the career of the seed, steadfast despite the reversals brought about by Cain and Tubal-Cain and Nimrod and Pharaoh and Rome, and ultimately Satan, sin, and death. Michael, in his final reply, and these are his last words in the poem, calls this the sum of wisdom, higher than all earthly knowledge of the stars, about which, by the way, there's a whole book, book seven, and all nature's works, as it, or book eight, all nature's works, as if to say with Pascal, knowledge of physical science will not console me for ignorance of morality in time of affliction, but knowledge of morality will always console me for ignorance of physical science. It's not enough, however, merely to have such wisdom and knowledge. Michael continues, only add deeds to thy knowledge answerable. Add faith, add virtue, patience, temperance, add love, by name to come, called charity, the soul of all the rest. Then wilt thou not be loath to leave this paradise, but shall possess 
a paradise within thee, happier, far. Answerable, that is, responsible, knowledge shows itself in action, in deeds, as a fruit of this highest wisdom that Michael recognizes in Adam. Michael's words here follow almost exactly those found in the second letter of Peter in its first chapter, except for the final verse where Peter writes, for if these things be in you and abound, virtue, patience, temperance, and the like, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Michael instead gently reminds Adam that he must leave paradise the place, but take it with him as an inner state, as if to suggest that the fruitfulness of the Garden of Eden can be extended to wherever wisdom and the greater fortitude of acts of charity consonant with it are done. We can thus see how Michael's final words are equivalent to this verse from 2 Peter as adapted to the circumstances of Adam, who has just been brought from despair at the loss of paradise, a despair that prompted Eve to propose a deliberate barrenness, to the prospect of an even greater happiness that comes with the possession of paradise within. And what, finally, of Eve? She's slept through all of this, Michael having drenched her eyes with a soporific before his conversation with Adam began. Well, it doesn't look so far like Michael's been here. That's good. At Michael's urging, Adam asks, hastens to the bower where Eve has been sleeping, only to find her already awake and advised by her dreams of all that he has learned. For God is also in sleep, he says. Eve is given the last words quoted in the entire poem, as beautiful and as lyrical as any in the poem. But now lead on. In me is no delay. With thee to go is to stay here. Without thee, here to stay is to go hence unwilling. Thou to me art all things under heaven, all places thou who for my willful crime art banished hence. This further consolation, yet secure, I carry hence. Though all by me is lost, such favor I unworthy am vouchsafed. By me the promised seed shall all restore. Eve at once accepts and approves their banishment from Eden and urges Adam to lead the way, thereby reversing the role, their roles during the catastrophe of the fall. The flowing iambic motion of the line, in me is no delay with thee to go, interrupted by the affectingly simple chiasmus that follows with its stop-start alternation of go, stay, stay, go, convey both a sense of the restored order she professes in her relation to Adam and the incipient joy that she feels in the newly discovered paradise within. Her words also both echo and anticipate the, the words of Ruth, the Moabite woman, to her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi, as they set out from the security of Moab to return to Judah. Whither thou goest, 
I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. Eve's final lines indicate that she is at once, though sorrowing, yet in peace. And her final two stressed accusative, me's, reverberate with her earlier offer to take the full responsibility for the fall and with the son's offer to save mankind to the extent that the two almost seem to merge in her final line, by me the promised seed shall all restore. This is the last spoken line of the poem, but it is not the last that we hear. The final five lines with their deeply touching image of Adam and Eve as they depart paradise, show that, the, show that they are now again together alone. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. This penultimate word, solitary, seems to be in tension with the hand in hand of the line before, just as wandering in that line is in tension with place of rest in the line before it. These tensions may strike us as both troubling and true. The very crooks of the matter in an argument more heroic. Thank you for your kind attention and heroic patience. <laughs>